Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, I'm John Molesky, and this is America's 360. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, and America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, natural disasters, political turmoil, and continuing economic insecurity have caused thousands of Haitians to leave their country in search of refuge across the Americas. While data on the exact number of migrants arriving in each country is unknown, the Secretary for Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, has called the migration unprecedented, with a total of nearly 30,000 migrants passing through the camp under the Del Rio International Bridge in Texas earlier in September. The treatment of Haitian migrants in many countries, particularly in the United States, has caused outrage. Footage of migrants being herded by Border Patrol agents on horseback as they attempted to cross the Rio Grande, has raised urgent questions about policies and practices at the border, and more broadly, about the entire U.S. immigration system. So there's lots to talk about, so we'll bring in our panel and get started. Please say hello to Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. Great to be with you. Slater Family Fellow and Senior Associate for the Brazil Institute, Anya Prusa. Hi, John. Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudman. Hi, John. Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour. But wait, there's more. We have a special guest today. She is Latin American Program Fellow Niambi Carter. Dr. Carter is a professor of political science at Howard University and is currently conducting a research project at the Wilson Center titled Special Procedures, Race, Place, and U.S.-Haitian Refugee Policy, 1973-2017. I should also mention that Niambi is the author of the book American While Black, African Americans, Immigration, and the Limits of Citizenship. Welcome, Niambi. Thank you for joining us as well. Thank you, John. So if you don't mind, we'll begin with you. Uh, if you could just provide us with some general overview of what is driving the spike in Haitian uh, migration currently. Well, I mean, I think Haiti has been without security for quite some time, and there have been lots of political upheavals from the removals of Aristide in the 90s to now we've had the assassination of Hobonel Moist this summer. There have also been natural disasters like the earthquake from 2010 and then the earthquake of this summer. And we have a number of people who've been gone from Haiti for about a decade, who've been in places like Brazil and other parts of Latin America, who are now making their route up to Mexico now that the administration has changed, hoping that they will be allowed into the United States. So there are a lot of things, both uh, environmental, political and otherwise, that are pushing uh, folks toward the border at this particular moment. Could you put it in some context in terms of volume, what we're seeing now compared to what has been the normal flow over, say, the last decade or so? Yeah, I mean, we're now seeing upwards of thirty to 35,000 people. I mean, it's creating bottlenecks around Latin America in places like Panama. And there's just nothing like it in terms of scale that we've seen. I mean, there have always been maybe 5,000 people, I think even as high as 10,000 in some cases. But now you're seeing thousands upon thousands, and they're expected to be more and more ways. And this is going to put pressure on the entire sort of South American part of the, the world right now. 
Great. Thank you, Neil. So what we're going to do now is sort of a little meet the press style. We'll go around and have each of our regulars on the roundtable ask you a question, and then we'll get into some general conversation among the entire group. Let's do it in the order of introduction. Cindy, can you go first, please? Sure. Thanks. Nyambi, thanks so much for that. And I know that you've worked for many years on on this topic. Can you describe overall, I mean, again, we were all horrified by the images that, that we saw by the treatment of, of Haitians trying to come into the United States. We know that immigration policy under Biden has been very complicated, both for the administration, but also for the rights of uh, of migrants and refugees. But you have focused particularly on the way that Haitians have been disfavored in the U.S. immigration system. And I was wondering if you could flesh that out. What is the situation of Haitians vis-a-vis migrants from other parts of the of the hemisphere? That's a big question and a great question. And I think one of the things that has sort of preoccupied me lately is why does this keep happening over and over again? So as John pointed out, the images were really shocking, but this has been an ongoing process. This has happened over a series of decades across administrations, regardless of partisan persuasion of that administration. And I think one of the things that has sort of been, I think, a through line is just a lack of acknowledgement of the human rights of Haitian people. And what I mean by that is that seeking asylum is not illegal, yet Haitians are treated as if seeking asylum is illegal. So these are things like being detained indefinitely without due process rights. In some really horrific circumstances, not just at Guantanamo Bay, but the Crone facility that was in Florida, even Haitian women being put in a federal prison at Alderson, West Virginia. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I think make the Haitian case unique is there seems to be broad agreement across administrations, whether you're looking at Jimmy Carter or Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush, all the way down to Joseph Biden, right? That Haitian asylum claims are really not serious enough and do not rise to the level of asylum claims that we respect from other parts of the world, right? So right now there's a lot of attention to Afghanistan, for example. And I think this sort of desire to treat Haitian refugees as economic migrants, which essentially means they're like migratory workers who are just seeking a better life and a right to work somewhere else, negates any claims that they might have to legitimate concerns about the political lives at home. And I think just a sort of disregard for the lack of security in Haiti right now is also something that, um, and not right now, but even in the past under Duvalier's regime and et cetera, I think is something that makes the Haitian case unique, at least in my mind. Anya. I wonder, Nayambi, if you could speak a little bit about the deportations that we've seen, right? Because the, the Biden administration has been sending many of these Haitians back to Haiti, but some of them had already built lives in Brazil or Chile or other parts of Latin America and had, you know, have not been in Haiti for years. And now suddenly they're, they're finding themselves back in their home country. So, you know, what is the, the situation for, for these people? Well, I think this is a really hard one. And I think the Biden administration has sort of signaled in the last couple of days that it's going to reverse course. And instead of sending people back to Haiti, they would send them back to Brazil or Chile or wherever they may have had a status as workers if they were allowed the right to work. But I think this is another sort of difficulty because people were fleeing Haiti because of that horrible earthquake the political unrest, and we're going to stop off places like Brazil, like Argentina, like Chile, 
and saving their money with the hopes of going to the United States because many Haitians, not all, of course, have relatives in the U.S., perhaps even in Canada, and we're hoping that these could be stop off places because you're talking about people who were essentially leaving with nothing. This wasn't like the sort of wave of Haitian refugees we saw in the 40s, 50s and 60s who were largely students, fairly well to do. Now you're starting to see people who've had a much more difficult set of circumstances. The Biden administration, at least, seemed to say, well, we're just going to send you all back to Haiti, regardless of whether you've been there in a decade or five years or not. The, of course, problem is those people who were hoping to pursue an asylum claim once they got sort of to the U.S. are going to have a much more difficult time because they've been gone from the country for a while and, as you rightly point out, have established lives in some other place. And so, unfortunately, for the people who've already been deported back to Haiti, where they've not had perhaps any contact for a number of years, it's going to be too little too late because it doesn't appear that the U.S., is going to say, go back and say, hey, we made a mistake and we should have really sent you back to uh, Brazil or the other place where you were before coming to uh, seek asylum from the United States. But at least there seems to be some sense that people should be allowed to go to that stop off place before they came to the United States rather than being sent directly back to Haiti, which has largely been our policy thus far. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. Thanks, Niambi. It's great to have you with us today. I guess I try to follow up on on the question that Anya asked and and your response, the the whole question of how governments are responding. The Mexican government, for example, has announced a policy to offer about $150 to Haitians who return to Haiti from Mexico. They have also proposed uh, working with Haiti to implement their tree planting program, Sembrando Vida. And at the same time, they announced a a plan to issue or offer asylum for about 13,000 Haitians. So I'm kind of wondering if you think about that, plus what you were talking about with the Biden administration, it, it seems like there's a lot of mixed messages from governments about, you know, yes, we want you and we'll, we'll help you or no, we want you to go home. And I just wonder what, what what do you think the impact of that is on people in Haiti now maybe thinking about whether to stay or, or leave? Well, I think it says something about people's desperation if they're willing to risk so much with really no indication that they're going to get anything out of it. I mean, I think if we've been paying attention to U.S. policy, it has not been very charitable to Haitians, asylum seekers. So the fact that people are willing to risk it anyway tells you something, I think, about the desperation Um, that people are experiencing. But I think it's, as you said, we're sending mixed messages. We're speaking out of both sides of our mouths. And I think we're really looking for our partner nations, whether it be Mexico or Panama or some other places to do a lot of the heavy lifting here. When really we know that the United States has really been a leader in this, in this area. And I don't know that we can expect other countries who are also facing issues around their own security, economic instability, potential recessions to continue to do this work because usually what we see is when countries are experiencing some sort of economic retrenchment, Haitians are usually the first people to kind of lose out in this particular landscape. But I also think it's important that if we are talking about or if we are going to be serious about stopping sort of the flow of migrants, not just into the United States and other parts of North America, but also South America, we have to deal with the politics on the island. 
deforestation is going to mean that there's going to be these more devastating natural uh, weather events, right? And we know that Haiti's had this problem for quite some time. We also know that if people can't feel safe at home, it is no reason for us to be, you know, sending people back there. I mean, people are reporting being kidnapped on the street, right? That there's just sort of a rampant lawlessness. That's not necessarily unique to Haiti. That's just a, what happens when you have this kind of political upheaval on a regular basis. So if we're going to be serious, then that means we have to make some real investments in trying to get people secure. If there's no security, there's no reason for people to stay home. If people don't have jobs that they can work and make an honest living, there's no reason for them to stay there. And I think if anything, we need to be wondering why on the very same island you can have Dominican Republic on one half and then you have Haiti on the other. Right. Like something here is not right. And I think until we really confront this, I mean, all of these countries that are saying we can't handle the tide and we can't we can't manage this crisis are going to just sort of be in this cycle. And it's going to be a miserable cycle for all involved for a very long time unless we really talk seriously about sort of what's happening on on the island. And it's not enough to sort of pay lip service to the various leaders of that country who say, well, the country's democratic, so it is democratic. We can't do that anymore, right? Just because Haiti's been a sort of reliable anti-communist ally, it's not going to be enough. Uh, I think it's important to listen to the people and what the people are crying out for is something far more serious and a much more a much deeper investment in nation building than it seems like the United States or any of the other nations that we've been talking about today are interested in doing. Chris Sands. Uh, thanks, John. Uh, Dr. Carter, one of the things I think a lot of the, the Canadians that I follow have been thinking is about the safe third country agreement that the U.S. and Canada signed back in, it took effect in 2004, which said that rather than cross the land border from the United States, refugees, asylum seekers would have to apply first to be to be for status in the U.S. and only then could they apply to go to Canada. And there was a federal court in just last year, 2020, that invalidated the agreement and the government promised that they would fix it. They haven't fixed it yet, so it's still the situation. I know that adds complexity for people who are seeking asylum and really does force them, unless they have a Canadian family member, as you mentioned, could, could be a ticket for them, but it really puts them in the position of having to get to the United States rather than trying to get to Canada. Do you think that that has made, some, to some extent, this problem worse or just minimized how much Canada can help? Well, I mean, certainly I don't think that Canada was foolish when they made that policy because essentially this policy says that the only place you can go before you can seek asylum is the United States. And we know what the United States is going to say. I think it makes it makes Canada complicit is what it does. Right. And I think that's a really hard one because the safe third country agreement really creates another boundary. Right. And it really creates another way for asylum seekers to be rejected. And I think this is one of the things that led to sort of trying to figure out another policy around it. I think it also puts Trudeau's feet to the fire, right? Because if one of the things that Canada has sort of stood on is this sort of openness and this idea that they're even a more tolerant America, right? Like that Canada is who America wishes it could be. But in this particular case, at least, it seems that Canada is probably even more out of reach for asylum seekers than the United States because of this policy. So I think 
at least in this moment, Canada can't sort of free ride off of sort of U.S. poor, the U.S.'s poor reputation and poor policy here. I think Canada is doing much of the same. And what they're going to do is really unclear because they've not really pronounced a lot in the way of how we are going to revise this program or how we will, in the case of Haitians, incorporate more of them into our Canadian asylum protocols. So I don't know that this moment is going to do much more or that Canada, excuse me, is going to do much more for for Haitian asylum seekers than the United States is doing right now. It sort of bears your point. The the Liberals promised to modernize the agreement and, and make some changes in 2019 when they ran in that 2019 election. We just had a Canadian election and it's proof that sometimes you put off action. You say you're going to do something, you put off action and when it comes when the bill comes due, when there's a new crisis, not being prepared, there's certainly been plenty of time. Hopefully, the Canadians can take this on and, and be ready for the next crisis. But uh, well, thank thank you very much for that. No, and, I, and again, and I will say, and it's not unique to Canada. Again, we've seen it in this country. I mean, Bill Clinton really went after George H.W. Bush about his interdiction policy. But what did he do when he got into office? He continued that and he signed the HIV ban, right, which allowed for... Haitians and others who were viewed as sort of carriers of HIV AIDS to be effectively barred, not just from immigration proceedings of any kind, but certainly from asylum proceedings. And so, I mean, that happens, you know, it's a great thing for an election, but when rubber meets the road, uh, people tend to go with what they know, which is why we are still using Title 42 in the Biden administration, even though they went after Donald J. Trump for this in the election of 2020. Listening to the discussion and the questions and answers, uh, you've all talked about either directly or indirectly certain themes, mixed messages, uh, differential treatment, depending on countries of origin, uh, lack of addressing of root causes, policies that aren't updated. Is there really any way to fix the problem in, in a writ large way without significant reform to the whole migration system and the immigration system in the United States? I would say the short answer is no, but I also think that there's no political will to do so. And I think that's the part that is really maddening because the needs of the world are not going to change. I mean, when we look at climate crisis after climate crisis that are happening, not just with Haiti, but around the world that are really pushing people out of their home countries. When we look at the political instability, the economic situation that are really pushing people out of their home context. I don't think we can get around it. I mean, it's not something we can avoid. And I think we're going to see this crisis again. And we keep using this language of crisis, but some of these things are foreseeable because we have smart people like you and others who've been working in this in this sphere for a really long time telling countries like, hey, this is only going to continue. Or if you allow yourself or align yourself with administrations that are politically expedient today, but we know are abusive, Tomorrow, you're going to have a lot of people that you have to answer to. And I think it's it's just a really unfortunate circumstance because there is an understanding, at least on some basic levels, that people have a right to live. And I mean that in the most basic way, right? People have a right to, to feel safe. People have a right to create a living for themselves and their families. But it seems that at least in the case of Haitians and many others, we've sort of abandoned our commitments to international human rights because it's not politically expedient. Unfortunately, the Haitian people have not been viewed as politically valuable or a real sort of geopolitical concern for the United States. 
So we would overlook abusive regimes if they said they were anti-communist, for example. Another problem, Niambi, with the the crisis designation is it ignores an underlying chronic condition where the suggestion is we're into something acute, it's temporary, it too will pass. And yet the the chronic uh, situation relies underneath. Cindy, given this notion that there is no political will and has not been for some time for massive immigration reform in the United States, when you look around the Americas, is everybody just in a a wait and watch uh, scenario where they must respond to acute circumstances, where there is no larger solution until the United States gets its act together? Well, I think that, you know, this is a pretty unique moment. In, in the hemisphere because of the COVID, you know, epidemic and the, and the economic hardship that it's caused. To me, one of the most striking aspects of this current wave of Haitian migration is the fact that people are coming from Chile, coming from Brazil. I mean, literally thousands of miles from the, the southern border of, of the United States. And we have to remember that, you know, there was a UN mission for many years in Haiti, first when Aristide was forced to resign and then came back after the earthquake. There were people, UN officials who were killed in the 2010 earthquake. But the significant piece of that was that Brazil and Chile led the military mission to help reform the armed forces and retrain the police to be less abusive. And it was a first, the first time, I think, in the history of the UN that you had a mission that was not only led by Latin Americans, but also composed largely of soldiers and police officers from Latin American countries. And because of the Chilean and Brazilian leadership of that military mission, there were large numbers of Haitians that went to Brazil and went to Chile looking for asylum, not trying to come to the United States. And you know their status as refugees has been very precarious. And they are really, you know, at the bottom of the bottom now in terms of social assistance. There's rising anti-migrant sentiment because of the levels of economic hardship that countries are facing. And Haitians have been a target. And so you see Haitians, as as Niambi was saying, that have lived for 10 years in Chile, making this enormously difficult trip to the U.S., including through Panama, through the Darien Gap, you know, jungle, marsh, you know, preyed on by organized crime groups and poisonous animals and and whatever, trying to get to the U.S. So to me, that's one of the most jarring sort of aspects of this recent wave that people have sacrificed everything to be able to come to the U.S. after having been out of Haiti for a long time and still facing discrimination and marginalization. And let's put it, you know, quite bluntly, racism. Andrew Rudman. Uh, well, in in Benjamin's absence, I'll try to channel his his positivity. I, I think it was just thinking about what Cindy was saying, and which I, I agree with entirely, is that if there's any silver lining to any of this, I think it's maybe the awareness that migration is not a Central America, U.S.-Mexico issue or a U.S.-Mexico issue. It's a hemispheric and obviously a global issue, and, and it does require leadership. And in the event that you know, perhaps the U.S. and Canada uh, could take the lead in working with partners in Colombia, Brazil, Chile, etc. We really could move toward a hemispheric solution. Maybe that's the kind of topic that could be addressed in the Summit of the Americas, which the U.S. will host next spring. You know, I, I do want to I absolutely want to come back to the question of race that Cindy the, highlighted for us. 
before I do that, uh, I want to turn to Chris Sands. You know, Andrew, in, in the case of Mexico, you're talking about a, a border country with the United States that has largely, in this case, served the function of a pass-through. Chris, is Canada, what is Canada in this? Is it a, is it a destination? I think it can be a destination. Um, there is a large um, Haitian community in and around Montreal. Uh, it goes back a couple of generations. And so there are, for many people, family ties. But even if you don't have family, the fact that that community exists makes their ability to find asylum and then be successful in putting down some roots and, and living as Canadians that much more probable. And not to pick on the Canadians, the U.S. has plenty of faults of its own, but this is one of those those things which focus on the election, focus on, on other politics. They really neglected fixing this problem. And I, you always get a second chance. I want the Canadians to do better. But given their historic ties, given their investments actually in Haiti itself, I think there's more they could do. It's ironic, too, in a way, because... The Canadians have been involved in so many projects in Haiti that there are a number of people who've worked with Canadian Development Assistance Funding, uh, there may be the Canadian church groups and so on to try to make Haiti a better place. And just as in Kabul in Afghanistan, where so many people who'd worked with Western countries were trying to get out and looking for their friends who they'd worked with, their networks to help get them out of Taliban rule, there are a lot of Haitians who look to Canadian aid workers, Canadians who've got connections and say, can you help me get to Canada and, and maybe maybe get started? So I think Canada hasn't showed up the way that it should have here, but it, it, and it can do better. But I think it's important to fix those problems because Canada should be uh, one of the places that Haitians outside Haiti would be most comfortable. Neon, beyond the question, thanks, Chris. And Neon, beyond the question of race, you know, when you're talking about uneven treatment based on country of origin or perhaps on circumstances, you know, we could talk about natural disasters or economic turmoil or political assassinations or instability. But there certainly does seem to be at least anecdotal evidence, if not something more quantifiable, that where you're coming from and what you look like factors into the, the, the treatment you can expect. So how does race factor into this equation, particularly in general, but particularly when we talk about Haiti? I think following up with my colleagues, I mean, anti-Blackness is a global phenomenon. And I don't think we can overlook how important Haiti being a free Black republic in the Western Hemisphere and taking on France at that particular moment in the 18th century, how formative that was to this country's sort of trajectory. I mean, I think we've used as, as the United States, but the West more generally, have you sort of used every mechanism in their arsenal to see this nation fail? And I think when we talk about Haitian people being singled out as sort of hemispheric troublemakers and being called everything from, you know, sort of Satan worshipers to violent and all of these other kinds of things that are associated uh, with this with this nation, I, I don't think there's any getting around it. And I think being alienated from the United States has often been associated with being black. And that's whether you're black American or uh, black from the Caribbean, black from the continent of Africa and other parts of the diaspora. And we have not only sort of cordoned off, you know, people identified as black who are native to this country, but even in our immigration policy, right? I mean, the immigration restrictions that we had in force for most of our country's existence have largely barred uh, people of African descent, wherever they may originate, from coming into this country. I mean, these sort of recent 
uh, waves of, of immigrants from not just Africa and the Caribbean, but also Latin America, Asia, is only enabled because of a sort of civil rights movement and a change and a push to change U.S. immigration policy. So I don't think that there's any any getting around the race question. And, and, and Cindy was right in bringing up sort of the ways that Haitians are being treated in, in Latin America. And a lot of that is about their complexion and sort of their being sort of scapegoated as disruptors of economies and takers of jobs and vectors of disease and, and criminal, right? So I think race permeates this entire conversation because I don't think we will be having quite the same conversation about Eastern European migrants or others if they were darker. Okay, thank you. You know, we are very short on time. And what I'd like to do is earlier, Andrew invoked our, our resident optimist uh, missing from today's broadcast, Benjamin Gadan. And so in, with this notion of optimism or pessimism and our earlier thoughts on whether we're dealing with a, a crisis or something that's more chronic, I want to ask each of you for a quick thought on what we can expect next. And if you see any reason for hope, or if you think that things are going to get worse before they get better. Andrew Rudman. Oh, um, I, I'd like to be, I, I'd like to be optimistic. Um, I, I think, you know, this is an issue that sort of the, the whole question of crisis chronic, it's sort of short term. People are looking for short term solutions to a long term problem. And so I'm, I'm not, I, I am hopeful, but probably not optimistic that things are going to get better quickly. Chris Sands. I, I do think that the crisis has hit a magnitude that an extra effort is, is required. And I think Canada, understandably distracted by their, by their recent election, we've, we've come through that now. So I think now's the time I would be optimistic that Canada looking at this will want to correct problems and, and be more proactive. There's really no excuse for them not to. Thanks. Cindy Artson. Um, maybe I'm the pessimist in the group, the, the yin to, the, to Benjamin's yang. <laughs> I think that given the complicated politics of immigration in the United States right now, and particularly with Democrats worried about losing the House and Senate in the midterm elections in, in 2022, there is zero chance that there's going to be a change in U.S. immigration policy. They will certainly try to avoid the horrific images that we saw of, you know, people on horseback chasing down, you know, migrants and hitting them with their reins. But I don't see that there is the political will anywhere to deal with this um, this sad crisis. Okay, thanks, Cindy. And, and uh, Niambi, we were saving. You're our special guest. We're really thrilled to have you with us today. So we saved the last word for you. I, I wish I could say that this would be better. Right. I wish I could say that the images were going to be enough to shock the system, but the United States has not stopped scheduling flights to deport people back to the island of Haiti. And I think that says everything we need to know about where we're going. So I'm I'm going to have to say that I'm I wish I could be hopeful. I wish I could be optimistic, but I, I think we have every indication, as Cindy said, that this is going to continue. Uh, it will not slow down. Maybe they'll change the look of it. Maybe we'll get less images of it. But I think as more issues come to the fore, like with the impending shutdown of the government and other things, this will be a forgotten story. And we'll be talking about this again in another few years as if it never happened. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sorry I, I introduced the word pessimism because nobody <laughs> wants to carry that label right. But clearly, realistic analysis is what you've all provided. And it's not always uh, what we're hoping for. But thank you, thank you. for your thoughts, all of you. 
we look forward to learning more from you in future episodes and and we hope to see you back here again Abby. thank you this episode of america's 360 was produced by oscar cruz cecily fasanella and zoe reed it was edited by sam vicroy with the assistance of barbara Germani, manuela jimenez ari gandhi sam kane jimenez and dante arali holly and thanks uh, to them but also thanks to all of you for listening to our program we hope to see you back here next time for our next episode until then for all of us at the wilson center in america's 360 i'm john molesky thanks for joining us you have been listening to america's 360 a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the western hemisphere you can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to learn more about our programs please visit wilsoncenter.org And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.